This is Sarah Goodyear. I'm here with a little taste of a bonus episode we're releasing to our Patreon supporters. It's an interview with the essayist Garnett Cadigan, who is currently the Tunney Lee Distinguished Lecturer in Urbanism at MIT. I talked with Garnett back when I was working on an episode on the Ray Bradbury short story, The Pedestrian. I had found Garnett, who grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, through a piece he published about his experiences walking the streets of American cities as a black man, under the title, Walking While Black. Garnett and I had a rich and complicated conversation. I was only able to include a little bit of that exchange in the pedestrian episode, which came out last March. So this week, we're sharing an extended edit of the talk I had with Garnett exclusively with our Patreon sponsors. If you'd like to enlist in the War on Cars and get ad-free special content like this, go to thewaroncars.org and click on Support Us. For as little as $3 a month, you'll get access to all our special episodes, along with some pretty great stickers and a handwritten note from one of us. Huge thanks to our Patreon supporters for making the podcast possible. And enjoy this preview of my interview with Garnett Cadigan. You said that walking while Black, you know, it's not just a diminishment of walking, that it opens up other things to you. And I I just wondered if you could amplify that a little bit. I sometimes fear the term wild Black. Would it be driving wild Black, walking wild Black, running wild Black? I understand that it has a polemical sense to it. It's a way of speaking about the asymmetrical nature of public space, of society, of the kind of things that you're restricted from doing because of mere color of your skin. You know, how our experiences are very different. That someone who is white walking through a particular park was seen as a chance to be freedom and to enjoy the outdoors. And someone black walking through the same space will feel that they got thrown into a panopticon that they're over-surveilled and that they're asked questions that suggest that need to give account of themselves, you know, why they're there, they don't belong. But Walking Wild Black also opens up these rich experiences. I think, for example, of me being in New Orleans and different opportunities and social and cultural possibilities that opened this up to me because, you know, I was black and walking past a barbecue and a group of people you know, black New Orleanians, you know, are cooking and they're slow and it's like, oh, that smells good. And they're like, you like that smell? And I say, of course I love that smell. They're like, well, come enjoy that smell. Come on in. You know, there are times that, you know, I walk into a room or a park or a music hall and there is this shared language or understanding that's, you know, rooted in experiences that are shared partially you know, many times fully because of what I call, you know, the black experience of commonalities that happen and that in at one shares, you know, by being black in the United States.
And so there are any number of things in beauty, in joy, in possibilities, in enjoyment, in adventure that happens also because of being Black. And so I'm very wary of it's been assumed that people are the sum total of the awful things that have happened to them. The black experience in public space being one of being weighed down by victimhood. That so much of in the black experience is one of improvisation of, you know, seeing the different limitations or obstacles life has thrown at you and navigating around it. And the very improvisatory nature of public space of seeing things coming your way that are uncomfortable but finding in ways with humor, with charm, you know, with warmth, with generosity to navigate around it. I've seen ways in which you can have rich encounters and open up social and emotional possibilities of finding adventures, of having wonderful experiences that are also coming from moving around and understanding what it means to be Black in the U.S., what it means to think of that in terms of the richness, in terms of the beauty, in terms of the joys, in terms of the wonderful capaciousness that could come from a variety of people who understood that experience and understanding what it means to push past, jump over, navigate around, climb under, and to continue to, to press forward. But also what it means to think of it in terms of joy. You keep hearing this term, black joy, black joy, black joy, and I think that so often people see it as this narrow term as in a particular black entertainment. But it's much more than that. It's the sense of one's own joy growing in, in a rich amplitude because of collective joy, collective and unified in a sense of we're in this together. You know, we're finding ways of acknowledging each other, of recognizing each other, of prompting growth and beauty and you know, enriching each other together as a group. And so there's, there's this wonderful beauty, I think, to walk in wild black of not only seeing the obstacles and the awfulness that life you know, has given you, but recognizing what it means to jump over, to push past them, to you know, press forward you know, with perseverance, with generosity, with beauty in the midst of it. And that has actually also been an important part of the Black experience in America, for African-Americans, for Blacks in the diaspora, people from the you know, West Indies like me, or people from you know, Latin America or from Africa, other continents who've come and have also found ways of, again, you know, being a stranger and found ways of connecting to the society or being you know, welcomed in, of being invited to learn from and participate in and share in the beauties in a, in of a particular culture that is struggle is part of its story, um, but joy and beauty is also an important part of its story. I hate to end with the police, but but let's talk a little bit about what your experiences with the police have been and how you've navigated those and what that has made you feel about your freedom to walk and to move through space and how it's affected that. 
I think of the police in the way I've been speaking earlier of there's a welcome way of being a child, of wanting to discover, wanting to explore, wanting to run along the direction of your senses and say, oh, there's more there. And I want more, 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 more of life, more of understanding, more of beauty. And then there's a way of treating you like a child that's condescending, that's putting you down, that's restricting you. And so I see there's this tension with me wanting to be a child in one particular way when I'm walking. And too often the police wanting to treat me like a child in a way that is undesirable. I see it also with what it means to be a stranger, that one of the beauties of walking is being a stranger and coming into deeper knowledge of a place and, and the beauty of having a space become a place that the more and more you walk through it, is the more it inscribes itself upon you, the more you extend your signatures on it, you know, your imagination extend to it. And a space becomes a place by repeated movement through it. You start recognizing the sounds, you start having a sense of its rhythm, the habits of its people, even particular way in which the ground evokes particular in you know, a feeling, you know, when it it's a little bit wet and, you know, that soil throws that fragrance up in your nose and you go, ah, yes, I know exactly which corner it is. I could walk here with my eyes closed and know exactly where I am. And so the beauty of moving from being a stranger to, you know, becoming familiar. And so you walk for that beauty of being a child, the beauty of being a stranger and moving along and growing from those places. But so often the police, it's treating a stranger in the way that makes you feel alien from the place that you're in, alien from your very body. And so I often think of my relationship with the police as somehow taking the very things that I want to celebrate, being a stranger, feeling childlike, and somehow perverting them. And so the police, you know, at their worst, perverts that experience degrades that experience often too often through brutality is but not only merely brutality but even just the way you're treated you know i think even the kindnesses as i mentioned in kevin young's poem where you're getting assistance but it's can i help you which is not really a question but really a statement when i lived in new orleans i had some very dear dear friends who were police officers who had spent quite a bit of time hanging out with who were also important part of letting me know and understand the city. But I often felt like if I wasn't around, you know, one of these four or five friends, you know, who are police officers, that I was too often vulnerable to people who treated me as if I was somewhere where I didn't belong, that I was in a state of trespass. I was somewhere that I shouldn't be. And then also the way in which I was to speak was to speak with such deep deference that it wasn't even deference anymore. It was in a humiliation. So there is this discomfort in the relationship, at least too often with me and the police, because of how power is used, because of how much, you know, walking, which is this act that at its best allows you to more richly experience your humanity. But then the encounter with the police often is a way of degrading their humanity and actually also degrading their humanity. Frederick Douglass you know, and so many others have reminded us that there is no way to actually degrade someone 
the skin color without degrading yourself. That there is no way for them to actually degrade me without degrading themselves at the same time. Except my degradation could come with blows. And I think, for example, of people who I see sometimes in public who say to the cops, you need to be doing this or you can't do this. Or, And I look on and think, that's a superpower. <laughs> I remember in Charlottesville, when the neo-Nazis were in town, and there's one particular video that was popular on the web that had come out shortly after, where there are some conflicts between the neo-Nazis and you know, a few others. I think it might have been Antifa. This person had gotten pulled away from you know, the group of neo-Nazis he was with, and it was him alone, you know, in a lone fellow. And he just took off his shirt. And it just slipped into the crowd and just thought, my gosh, like right here, he's pretty much saying the color of my skin, white skin has given me a superpower. I can just become invisible. I can just slip right in and I'm safe. And so it was the same thing that I see, you know, so often that the people who are able to speak to the cops and, and chastise them, you know, rebuke them. I just think of it as a particular superpower. And I can only think of it as a superpower that way because of how often the relations between me and them are people who look like me, you know, have my skin color and interact with them. Often made to feel that we're somehow subhuman dealing with humans, or rather not subhumans, we're in a deal with you know, humans who have no sense of our humanity and what it means to speak to us, what it means to listen to us, what it means to interact with us. And so you think of walking as encounter, but with the police, it doesn't feel like an encounter as much as walking as this bump in, in which the world itself becomes quite hostile to you. Actually, generally, you know what I fear the most when I think somebody is afraid of me. I'm not so much afraid that they're going to do something because of their fear. I'm afraid of hearing three tones, which is a tone of 911. Because, okay, so if the cops come, then who knows what can and, you know, and will happen to me. So I, you know, I'm afraid of people using the cops as the power that will enforce, you know, extend their biases or their prejudice. I'm afraid of the police who too often, you know, see their job as not to listen and to understand and to actually have human-to-human encounter, but rather to extend power in a brutal way with those who they think are beneath their respect. And so often the people I'm seeing seem to be beneath the respect of people of my complexion. I mean, I keep wondering, and maybe I'm living in a, in a Pollyannish bubble, but time and again I wonder, what might happen if police officers were, if a lot more of them were asked to actually spend a lot more time walking in the communities that they're, they're supposed to serve? And I think some of the problem also is them operating as if there are only two valences, power, and for them, power as realized in brute force, or fear. I think, you know, what it means to move through a place in which you're plane of entry. In other words, like you're coming through a car, you're continually making your way through a neighborhood in a city, a place by a car, and your way of inhabiting it is in this metal box, you know, moving anything from 30 miles per hour in above. The act of step-by-step step at human pace, at human scale, where you can stop, you can listen, you can observe, you can understand the difference between kids roughhousing 
rather than an actual fight. What could possibly happen? How might war can offer options apart from power as brute force or fear? I mean, I sometimes think of to serve and protect as you know, as a dark joke of the worst sort. You know, when I said it in um, in the in the cars of in law enforcement offices. But the reality is that we need to actually extend the conversation much broader because, you know, we have a society where so often our interactions with each other is along the vectors of fear and power. And so the police is just one subset of a much larger society that you know, hasn't come to a proper reckoning with how we use power, how we abuse power, you know, how people suffer the other end, you know, of our brute force with power. So often the way we think of public space, the way we think of, you know, where we live, how we navigate, in a, in a so often shaped by fear and power. That's it for this Patreon special episode of The War on Cars. Thank you so much to Garnett Cadigan for taking the time to talk with us. If you want to learn more about Garnett and his work, we'll have some links in the show notes. And thank you so much for making conversations like this one possible. We could not do it without you. I'm Sarah Goodyear, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Aaron Napperstack and Doug Gordon, this is The War on Cars.